Welcome to the Biblical Languages Podcast, brought to you by Biblingo. We bring together the latest research in linguistics, language acquisition, and biblical studies to better understand the biblical languages and ultimately the biblical text. As always, this episode is brought to you by Biblingo, the premier solution for learning, maintaining, and enjoying the biblical languages. Visit biblingo.org to learn more and start your 10-day free trial. I am Kevin Grosso, your host for this episode, and I'm excited to talk with Dr. Anthony Pym today about the new edition of his book, Exploring Translation Theories. Welcome to the show, Anthony. Hi, hi, Kevin. So just a little about Anthony. He is a professor of translation studies at the University of Melbourne in Australia and at Universitat Rovira. Oh, I'm going to butcher this in, in uh, Spanish. E. Virgili. You're, you're doing very well. Yes, in Spain. It's, so it's... Uh, okay, okay. So it's not Spanish. <laughs> Uh, it's Catalan. It's in Catalonia, right, right. Which, which is technically part of Spain. Yeah. Sure. Right, right. Um, so he has been a practicing translator since the 1980s, mostly working from Romance languages. Um, so, and like I said, he has a, a new edition of his book, Exploring Translation Theories, out, um, where he covers, you know, really the really broad spectrum of different translation theories and, and how that works out in practice. And so we're going to touch on some of those today. Um, so in your work on translations, um, you often helpfully point out how translations are done by people with a certain history and ideology. And I think you have another work specifically devoted to that kind of thing, um, which I can't remember the title of at the moment. But so this is, of course, true of all scholars. And I think people, um, you know, when they approach a text, they forget that these are written by people <laughs> um, with backgrounds and histories. Um, so can you give us, in the same vein, a little bit of your background and your interest in translation studies? Yeah, sure. Uh, the other work is perhaps my work on translation history. I, I wrote a book on method in translation history, arguing that translators are people with ideas and motivations and backgrounds, as are translation scholars like myself and and, and, and you. Uh, I'm Australian. I... Uh, Came to live in Europe. I've spent more time in Europe than in Australia. I've taught in the United States, in Monterey especially. Uh, my background is in literature, but I've moved out into all kinds of translation. And my main interest at the moment has been, following COVID, in public health communication, actually, and, and how to get information out in super diverse cities. I've been living in Melbourne uh, for the last uh, seven years. Uh, so how do you reach, uh, get messages out to, to a city of 270 different languages being spoken? Uh, so that that's where I am at the moment. I have a PhD in sociology. I've mainly translated in, uh, in economics, in sociology, political texts. I worked for the president of Catalonia for a while. Okay, and, and lots of different things. Okay, that, that's enough about me. I, I'm uh, Western. I, I'm talking about Western theories. I'm very aware, increasingly aware, of non-Western translation practices and the need to think those through as well. 
Yeah, and that was that was one of the helpful things when reading through your book was just um, you know bringing in different perspectives on this whole issue because you know when we tend to think of translation as very um, monolithic, you know, and and there's one way to do it, uh, but you helpfully point out that there's actually a lot of different ways that it has been done. Um, so one of the things that struck me when I first opened your book was um, that you begin by saying that spoken translation is more correctly called interpreting. And I actually, you, you um, inserted this word spoken into my, my notes here. And the way I read it, um, I, I said, oh, I, I could see it being parsed either way, but I don't, wouldn't understand how spoken translation is different than say written translation in one being interpreting one not being interpreting. So can you just flesh out what you mean by this statement in general? Why is okay. um, spoken translation called interpreting? And is that okay. different than written? Let's 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 go back to square one. Uh, in the professions, as such as we have it, uh, interpreters speak their translations, and translators write translations, and that's a very traditional distinction that's been around for a long, long time, and was actually authorized by the Supreme Court of the United States. Just out of interest, um, for me, theorizing though, and, and thinking about how we solve problems. I, I don't pay much attention to it. I'm really interested in the ways that spoken work is coming into written work. So, you know, we can uh, work on uh, a computer program and speak our translations, uh, speech to text, and that works very well. And, 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 and interpreters these days, often with deposition interpreting, for example, they're reading their translation out from a written transcript that comes in automatically. So the traditional division between spoken and written is being broken down a lot these days. And in my theorizing, I do tend to just talk about translation as covering both modes. Although in the profession, the, the traditional distinction is, is still intact. Don't know if that helps you. But then there's the other sense of interpreting, which is to construe a text, the hermeneutic sense, to, you know, to make sense of a text, and, and that has been the, the, the biblical uh, tradition, you know, since the 19th century, the great focus on, on hermeneutics. Uh, that's a completely different sense of interpreting. Okay. Right. So that's helpful. So, and, and we can get to, to that question again later, because it really is a, um, you know, it's some people within the um, Bible translation, certain Bible translation traditions will say, we're not interpreting. We are just translating. Um, yep. And, and that is a, um, yeah, it's it has its own set of presuppositions that we can get into in a little bit. So, um, just before we get to the actual like meat of the book, um, what are some pros and cons? And you you talk about this some of knowing translation theories, both for the translator and reader of a translated text. I mean, how would you respond to someone that says, you know, I don't really need to know theory. I just need to, you know, practice, and um, you know, the theory itself is not is not that important. Yeah, I would say they're dead right. Don't tell anybody. I want people to buy my book. But, <laughs> uh, but uh, I was a practicing translator before I got into any of the theoretical stuff. Um, excellent translators uh, do it by uh, experimenting, coming up with their own solutions, finding out what works, and, and, and that can happen. That, that's fine. It, like in any um, practice-based occupation, you know, you learn it by doing. You really do. 
So when I train translators um, at master's level, for example, um, I do very, very little theory. I give some notions about the the, the range of solutions that, that, that people can use so that they think beyond the limited set that they begin with. And I have some ideas about the market and how that's working. But beyond that, it's really hands-on, group work, discovery stuff, all the technology, discover that for yourself, find out if it works for you. Uh, so I'm, I'm certainly not pushing theory onto anybody. Uh, come to it if you've got a problem and you don't know how to solve it, then you look around and see if somebody can help you solve it, perhaps with a concept or two, and that's when the theories come in, I think. Yeah, so that's that's really um, interesting. And and just the way you, obviously, it's interesting that you wrote a book on exploring transition theories and say it's not, uh, it has limited value. I mean, some value, right? In um, if you, again, only are viewing translation in a certain way, you, it might broaden your perspective a little bit and how to approach a problem. I um, should have added, though, I'm an academic, so I actually like all the arguments, all the <laughs> abstract arguments, and, and that's a field in itself. you know. Right. Uh, uh, so, uh, yes, yeah, a struggle exists on the level of practice. As classical Marxism says, you know, you, you try to reach paradise on the level of practice, but also on the level of ideas. So, yeah. so the book is there for people who enjoy ideas as well. Right. So do you, do you feel like it would be helpful for a reader of a translated text to know some theories behind, you know, what translators are thinking when they're translating from another language? Oh, uh, look, it, it, it's really beneficial if a translator can write a preface saying, I've done it this way. Mm. You know, I've, I've adapted it for this reason, or I've been as literal as possible for this reason, uh, just to state what their strategies are. And I think these days, because we're using lots of technologies, you know, lots of um, post-editing machine translation, that's just getting a machine translation and correcting it. I think it's really important to be trans as transparent as possible and just say how you did the translation and when you had problems to solve, how did you go about solving them and, and what the purpose of the translator is. Because, you know, you get three translators on the same text, you get three different translations. Because right. they're different. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I, I think if I were to kind of summarize my understanding of, um, you know, I guess the foundation of translation for you, according to the theories, um, I would probably say it's equivalence, um, just in terms of it being a necessary part of every kind of translation, <laughs> right? There is, there, you, you can't take, um, and I know that's, that's like debated right in some of the theories but um to me it seems like you know you can't uh like if you have a text right you have to put it in some form in another language right but it has there has to be some sort of connection back to it and i know you again you bring up some of the the um you know back and forth between scholars on this um so but and we can get into that in a bit but what is equivalence and how is it foundational or not to translation in general Okay. Personally, I, I think the concept of equivalence uh, goes back to the claims of fidelity, and it's central to Western thinking and practice in translation since the Renaissance. If I go back to the medieval period, there's a very different mode of thought, and if I go to non-Western cultures, I often find that uh, people will regenerate a new text 
with minimal regard to the value of the previous one. Mm. Or in Australian Aboriginal cultures, I've been looking at their uh, multilingual practices. You know, you 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 invent a new corroboree, it uses elements from the old one, but you put them together in new ways, and that's a legitimate practice. So, so equivalence is important for you and me because we're working in that tradition from the European Renaissance and especially print culture. So print culture gives you a, a fixed text to which you can be equivalent, okay? Mm-hmm. Prior to that, there was no fixed text. Texts were constantly retold, uh, rewritten in the manuscript tradition, uh, and, and so translation was just another level of transformation. Completely different way of thinking about it. But sure, uh, where we are in our cultures, there is that presumption that the translation will have some value that is the same as the value in the previous text, equivalence. Not the whole text, not all value, but something that will be there, some invariant core, if you like. Yeah, well, and, and that leads us to this next question. So what are some of the ways that different translators can make two things equivalent? You said it's two equal values. Um, you know, how, how um, you know, how do we make two things equal in value? And what, what kinds of values are we talking about in that? Yeah, it's, it's very difficult to, 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 to measure values. Um, one of the easiest ways is just to copy what's there. Okay. Uh, so, you know, you got a computer. The English word is computer. Yeah. Computers come into Spanish speaking lands and we have a word ornador in, in South America or Latin America and, and ornador here in Spain. Uh, they're equivalent. How are they equivalent? Because the, the object exists, right? And there's functional equivalence in your computer, in the software. You, know, you you click on a certain key and something happens and you know it's equivalent because it works. And, and that one's pretty easy. Uh, the problem is when you get to conceptual equivalence, when uh, a function in one language sort of corresponds to a function in another. And uh, and that begets, uh, you know, a classic example from Eugene Ida, since we're talking about Bibles ultimately, um give each other yes this is uh in in, in, in uh, paul's letters give, give each other a holy kiss uh this didn't sound too good in the 1950s in the united states so it became for eugene nider a, a hearty um handshake okay so the the biblical kiss becomes a handshake same function friendly greeting just in different cultures and that can be equivalence because uh the value is the social function rather than a particular object, as is the case for the computer. So those are two very simple examples. In between that, you know, translators do a whole lot of things. You know, translators, if, if a concept is new coming into a culture, quite regularly you, you add in an explanation or you spell it out a bit more. So translations get longer. Uh, than, than the original text. That, w- that would be explicitation. Sometimes the concept is really well-known or unnecessary, and there it gets shorter, and that would be implicitation. Uh, you can um, do a whole lot of things on the level of inventing new words. Translators have always been on the front line of neologisms. So uh, instead of just copying the foreign word, we can invent one, as the French did for ordinateur. Okay, it's not a computer. They just have a different way of thinking about it. And uh, translators invented that word. 
Okay. Uh, so I have a chapter there in the book. I think I have seven main strategies that they use, but within each, there are a whole lot of solutions. And this is where practicing translators are really good. They come out with wonderful, wonderful solutions, more or less off the cuff to solve ad, ad hoc problems as they arise. Yeah, so I, I I guess part of the um what I'm hearing you say is that really there's a lot of different solutions that are really going to be interwoven through a single text. So like if if in Nida's example, and you you mentioned this, right? That Nida is in favor of dynamic equivalence sometimes, right? <laughs> like in there are times, right, where he's going to be, you know, quote unquote literal. Um, and then there are other times where he says, okay, this doesn't make sense in my culture. Um, and so I'm going to, you know, rework it so that it makes sense to my culture. Um, even though it's not literally what is being said in, in the start text or the, the source text. Um, so, so how, how, how do you sort of like, um, well, how is this related to the, you know, again, in the Bible translation world, people often talk about this literal versus free dichotomy. And you mentioned this, um, what what is that dichotomy and 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 you actually mentioned some of the problems with the free translations what are some of those issues that come up when we talk about you know a sort of free translation of a text yeah look Eugene Nida was a, a really really very good linguist uh, she's a Greek scholar as well and um he he uh, his examples say a whole lot more now he was a very good teacher as evangelists tend to be so he simplified it down to these two options of, of dynamic equivalence and formal correspondence, sometimes called formal equivalence. So you, know, you can do this or this. And then other versions say, well, the formal correspondence is literalism, just translate as close to the text as you can while producing correct language. And then freedom, well, what is that dynamic? My point is this. If you get down to a translation and look at all the things that translators are doing or look at Nida's examples and all the wonderful things he comes out with there, there's always more than two options available. You know, there, there's, there's two or three or four or seven or ten uh, different translators over history have found, you know, hundreds of ways to solve some of those particular problems uh, quite differently. So my point is, it's never a question, in principle, of one way or the other, of literal versus free. Why is that? Because you know what? There are many kinds of freedom, and you can do a lot with freedom. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I have a lot of respect for NIDA. I, I, I have less respect for people who want to reduce it to, to that or to the classical one, which is you know, foreignizing when you're very literal, and domesticated when you're more functionalist, uh, reinventing things in, in the target culture. It's never just one or the other. There's lots and lots of things that translators do. Yeah. And it, and it to me, it seems like, um, you know, a lot of the literal versus free dichotomy is, is kind of marketing in a lot of ways. It's like, well, we are literal, right? But you are only literal until you get to a text where you have to be a little bit more dynamic, right? Um, I mean, it's just, you know, that's just how it is. I mean, we, we, I interviewed someone else on this, on this, uh, you know, I mean, this series and he was talking about this sort of thing. And, and the translation he worked on was a very literal translation. And there's this phrase in Hebrew that says, um, you know, all who 
um, pee on a wall, right? And that's the uh, ref- a reference to males. And okay. the King James translates that very literally. Um, but this translation, which is a, in general, very literal translation, just translates it as male, right? Yes. And so, so there is a, you know, um, I mean, I, I think this is the important point, right? Is that even if you hold to a certain, you know, philosophy or um, way of doing things generally, there are going to, there's going to come a point where, you know, it doesn't work as well, right? And and it begins to break down usually, right? And so it, it is kind of on this spectrum between literal and free. And I even think about literal. I mean, you can, like you said, transliterate a text, right? And that is a form of literalness. Um, or you can translate, you know, word for word, right? And that's another form of literalness, again, on a spectrum. Um, so I think that was one of the really helpful things. I mean, I I saw your seven list of seven ways of, you know, sort of approaching this, uh, you know, this problem of translating any sort of word or phrase. Um, and, and that's that given that range of options, I think is, is one of the most valuable things because you see people doing this all the time, right? They just, they often don't know that they, they really are. Um, so uh, along this, I like the pee on the wall example. It reminds me of this wonderful, uh, early modern Spanish translation of, of what we call the old Testament done by a Jewish translator, uh, and the manuscript's wonderful because the actual literary is instructed to be as literal as possible. So in the center of the page, you have the literal translation. And then all around the rest of the page, you know, about three times as much text, you've got his explanation and commentary on it. So his way of managing that problem was just to put in all the all the Jewish scholarship around as notes for his Christian readers to inform them. Uh, so translators can do more than just the straight translation. They can always do that, but uh, often people need more than that in order to understand a text. Yeah, and, and at that point, it's like, you know, are you are you just going to put it in the text or in a, in a footnote, right? I mean, that's kind of the, the question. Um, yeah. which or is in just, a sermon, you know. Right, that's, right, right, exactly. Um. So, so I mentioned this in the beginning, or when we're talking about interpreting. Um, so that you know, again, uh, in the this world of Bible translation, interpreting is often equated with dynamic translation. Um, you know, and again, I have this quote from from one scholar who said about this translation: "It is not an interpretation of the scripture; it is the scripture." So, how how would you respond to the claim that like more literal translations are less interpretive? I, I don't think it's, I mean, I don't think there is any language that doesn't require a hermeneutic process to understand it, just in, in the nature of language. There are always two passes, production and reception, and both are creative. So uh, <laughs> philosophically, uh, that, that seems pretty uh, untenable. However, you know, the, the whole hermeneutic tradition in, in German language biblical scholarship, coming from Schleiermacher right through the 19th century, um, was trying to get at the meaning of the text by reading it in historical context. And so this was modernism in the, in, in the 19th century church. Uh, and their purpose was to get as close to the message as possible by dispensing with the surface level of the text. So they were doing a lot of a lot of comparative linguistics as well, uh, and I think they they're, they're certainly their intention was to get as close as possible to the message. 
but they would not have said, because they had to do all that work, that the literal version is the message. Why? Because language always has meaning in context. Context change, therefore language usage has to change as well. I don't know if I'm answering the question, but um, Doug Robinson has written on spirit channeling as a belief uh, in the production and reception of translations, a lot of it coming through the Christian church, uh, where if you look at, at prefaces to Bible translations, you find something like the translators were united in their belief or in their faith in the word of God. And that if people have this belief and faith, then by some kind of magic, the spirit will channel through them to the translated words and therefore to the believing reader. Who am I to say that that doesn't happen? Okay. Uh, but it's a belief. It's a faith. It's not something that uh, as a linguist, I can get down and particularly analyze. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, kind of the, issue is that that would probably be the claim of everyone right of every translation <laughs> right uh, i mean pretty much like all bible translations are going to claim hey you know the spirit's working in us and we did our best and this is what is you know but yeah. but I but i think, believe them more than most other translators though to tell you the truth oh for sure yeah. for sure yeah. you know because but, but i think i think you know for for bible translation it is a um they want their audience to have confidence in the text in a different way, right? It, it's That's not true. enough to say, well, you know, we, I, I tried, but I, I, I'm probably wrong, <laughs> you know, here, here, and here. Um, so, but, but I think at the end of the day, recognizing that all translations are, you know, involve hermeneutics, involve interpretation, and therefore are subject to our, you know, interpretive errors, right? I mean, I think at the end of the day, like that, that is a, necessary philosophical position for for any sort of translation um that you know you you can you can just get it wrong sometimes you know even if you stick very literally to the text like that also might create errors um of course or errors in understanding further down the line right um right. Ernst Gut has an interesting take on that he, he wants to send the work to the reader so his his um reply to Nider is you should be as, as literal as possible and get the reader to do the interpretative work. You know, get out and find what was happening in the first century in Palestine and what that what that meant there, which means giving a lot of supportive materials. That's just another way of looking at it. Uh, what what really intrigues me though is that for any translation to work in our Western tradition, you need trust. The translator has to be trustworthy and appear to be trustworthy. Uh, which is why you get those prefaces and the statements. And the reason is pretty obvious. Um, a reader could work a lot to have access to the start text. So I can you know, go off, as you've done, and you learn a lot of uh, biblical Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek and get down and do that work yourself. But it's a hell of a lot easier to trust somebody to do that for you. Okay. And uh, as Lumen put it, trust is a reduction of complexity. Uh, it's too complex to do it ourselves. We will trust somebody to do it. And translators need that trust in order to work. Uh, that, that's one reason why I think they should have more of a discursive presence in the text and tell us more about themselves. Like we trust a doctor for advice about our health. 
we trust a translator for advice about what's going on in these texts. Right, right. And and in that respect, too, um, you know, they, the, I mean, again, I'm just thinking about this debate between Knight and who, who is the Gut, right? Gut. Um, G-U-T, yes. Gut yes. in English, yes. Gut in German, and right. Gut, yes. Right. So, so, you know, Nida is, I mean, you can trust both of them, right? Um, but Nida is giving you, well, they're giving you different information, right? So with the hearty handshake versus the, you know, holy kiss, it's like, if you give them the holy kiss, they would have to do the work to figure out what that actually meant, right? Um, Nida is giving you the work he's done, right? And what he thinks as equivalent. Yeah. Either way, he's done the work for you. Yeah. Right. 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 And but either way, you know, you can. Well, I feel like you have to have more trust in the dynamic equivalence, right? So because you have to say, okay, this person already did the work, and I am going to say that they're probably right, even if I, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't even have access to the work. If my translation says a hearty handshake, I don't have access to what the original you know, literally said. And so I, I can't even do that sort of thing. I would, I would probably think, oh, we've been handshaking for a very long time, right? <laughs> as a, as a way of greeting, right? Yeah. Which is not true, um, at least per the text, but, but either way I would have to, I, I guess I'm having to trust them in a different way. Does that make sense? It, may, it makes sense. There's a couple of things ha- happening there. Um, uh... Nida was actually at the core of this project to set up uh, translation projects all around the world with Bible consultants who would work with people in the language and in the culture. And so the ultimate decisions were made by the people in the culture. So it's a way of of getting rid of that responsibility. And uh, they had to trust the advice of the people who, who were getting the Bible coming into their culture. Um, and the second thing is that uh, the vision was to have a series of translations. So there is the first translation, as you would have a, a Bible translation for kids, for example, right, where you're introduced to it, and then you go on to more serious study later on, and you will get the more literal translations supported by learning materials. Uh, so it, it's a process of retranslation. Uh, as one comes closer uh, to the enculturation process. Uh, it's a mistake, I think, to to read neither superficially as saying, well, that's the translation, and that's the only one you're going to get, and it'll have to be good, and you'll have to trust me, because I say it's good. Uh, it, it wasn't quite as authoritarian as that. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And, and it does make sense. I mean, in, you know, again, in the English world, you know, there's just way, way too many translations, <laughs> but um, you know, it's it's it can be like confusing, really, for people, um, because just there's just so many. Um, oh yeah, that, that that Bible one, the the Jewish translator, he, he was employed because there were too many translations going around. Nobody knew what the real text was. It lost <laughs> authenticity, and so they had to go to the the the, Jew, the rabbi who's a rabbi. And get it, get them to do it for them, so they could get back to something like the original text. Well, yeah, that's again, it's it is. Uh, I mean, in our context, it's just it's just crazy. Um, so, so these are this or this whole discussion has really been in the context of equivalence. Um, but this idea of equivalence has 
gotten pushback. Um, particularly, you call them the Scopos-related theories. How how have they pushed back against equivalence? Yeah, so Scopos just means purpose, really. And uh, these people in Germany, Hans Vermeer, uh, used to hold mentor in Finland, uh, came out and said, look, uh, the translation is there to serve a purpose. The translator should do whatever is required to fulfill the purpose. And the beginning of the translation is the instructions received from the client. So the client wants a translation to do this and this and this to these people. The translator goes and fulfills those instructions. If that means being very literal, then you're very literal. If that means changing things and adapting or editing the text, uh, then you can do that. So the kinds of things we're talking about, you know, Bibles for kids, Bibles for, for Bible scholarship groups, uh, that's just scopus theory. That's just purpose theory. Different, different translations for different purposes. And it makes sense, I think. It's, it was forgotten about. It was forgotten about by dogmatic translation theory, which said, you know, there is the correct translation. These people were not working on Bible translations or literary translations. They're basically working for industry, and, uh, and they're getting their students employed in industry, uh, and they were just saying, keep your client happy. Not, not a bad principle after all. So how, how though, is that, that related to equivalence? So because I could just see, you know, okay, so if I have a client that says, I want the translation in this way, either way, I still have to have some sort of recourse to the original text. And, uh, you know, I'm equivalent in some way if, if I want it literal or dynamic, right? So is it really a pushback? Is it kind of superficial, you know, um, argument against equivalence, or or how is that? How are those two related? No, they they were arguing um, that translators can do more than translate, and and in business, this is a very important principle. Not not so much in religion, but uh, they were saying a translator should have the capacity to to tell the client, "This text you want me to put to this culture will not sell your car. Let me rewrite it for you, or go and get somebody else to write another text." Or the first half will work, but not the second half. So I'm, I'm not going to translate the second half. Or let me give you an example that I've got from the from the culture. Uh, so it's just a message, a, 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 a question of getting the message through by whatever means, with or without translations, which for us means with or without equivalence. Mm. Um, I had a similar thing. What we did in in Melbourne for COVID vaccination when the official translations were just not getting people vaccinated. And so messaging went to the various cultural communities who produced their own messages, often just audiovisual stuff, you know, on, on social media, with typically doctors saying why they got vaccinated in their own language for their own reason. Is that a translation? Not anymore. Was it effective? Oh, yeah, that really worked. Um, so the Scopus people, for me, are most interesting when they push the boundaries of what we need. Often you need more than a translation, and translators can do more than translate. Right, yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I um, you know, again, in the context of Bible translation, one of the things that I thought about was, you know, how people, um, if you end up changing the version that they read, they will be upset because you're then changing their Bible, right? So if they're used to reading King James, um, 
I mean, this is actually why every English translation, um, especially the literal leaning ones, um, has to go back to the King James to some extent, because if you change that, then you are messing with their text, their sacred text, right? And and so you're kind of pigeonholed into certain interpretive issues um, that, you know, people are not going to accept if if um if you change so in in a way they are demanding a certain kind of translation be given to them right or a certain um you know at least a certain interpretation of certain passages because they don't want that to be messed with i mean how, how would you respond to that well it's it's a question of trust you know if you get that trust as being necessary and you start messing around with the passages that everybody knows, then people are going to question your trustworthiness. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not good. Um, although Christiana Nort, who was a person in that Skopos group, with her husband, Klaus Berger, did a translation of uh, New Testament texts. That's the one into German, right? In German, but they changed the classic Lutheran formations, which are, you know the Lutheran Bible is retranslated all the time. It, it keeps some structures absolutely intact. But the, the status of the translator as a theologian was such that he could take the risk and point to stuff that was happening in the text and, and use that difference to say, look, think about this text again. Think about the way it's working. So that can be done. I don't think there's any reason we should be locked into repeating uh, the interpretations of the past uh, simply as an easy way of, of maintaining trust. Sometimes we have to offer people new ways of understanding old texts. Yeah. Well, one of the other things I think about are, um, well, two things really is the uh, you know ancient translations. So you know the Septuagint is the translation of, from the Hebrew into the Greek ancient you know, Greek translation, which is like, for the most part, fairly literal, but there are a lot of things in the Septuagint that are not in the Hebrew text, right? What, whether they, there's a whole Psalm, for example, there's 151 in the um, Greek text, there's 150 in the Hebrew one, there's another, there's just whole books, right? So I, I, and I don't know, you know, are those considered translations at Qumran, um, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there there's a whole genre of literature called rewritten Bible, where people are taking biblical texts and they're you know um, doing certain things to them that we wouldn't call translation, right? They're they're rewriting them in ways that um, again I I don't know I don't know if it's if this qualifies as translation or not, um, but but they're definitely rewriting them and and interpreting them um, in a way that is different than what we would find acceptable, for example, in a translation. Um, but I think it shows, you know, even in the ancient world, you know, people, um, there's, there's obviously the, the client side, right. Where the client is demanding something from, from the, um, you know, the translator, but there's also sometimes the translator that's saying, Hey, I actually want this text to be a little bit different. (laughs) Right. And they are, you know, reworking things because they, they think it should be different. Well, often it's not just for the difference. Often it's it's to show things or show we do know so much more about the languages, uh, right? In period, and uh, we're, we're aware that what we call the Bible is a selection of texts. So the one I just mentioned with Christiana Norton and Berger 
It's just not called the Bible. It's called early Christian texts. So you've got all the apocryphal things in there as well, which is which is fascinating to, to look at and ask, well, how did these ones get in and these ones didn't get in? Um, that's also perhaps a part of the translation process is selecting uh, what gets in and, and what doesn't and, and what to focus on and what not to focus on. Yeah. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. So uh, this is, you know, kind of shifting gears here. Um, what are translation universals? So this is something that I really struck me as someone who's um, much more trained in the syntax semantics world in linguistics. Um, you know, you brought up some points about what happens when you move from one text to another. And in, in linguistics, we often talk about universal syntactic or semantic universals, um, yeah. you know, being things that will just work across languages. Um, what are these and and um, why do they arise? Okay. Uh, in, in this uh, book, I try to avoid the term universals because it does, doesn't have anything to do with Chomsky and deep-seated syntactic right. universals for a start. So I use uh, the term tendencies, translation tendencies, which was the original term proposed by the, the Czech scholar, uh, scholar G.D. Levy. Um, and tendencies are just saying that uh, translators, by the nature of their tasks, tend to um, do certain things independently of what languages and what direction they're involved in. So, for example, translations tend to be less rich lexically than, than the, their original texts. The, the type-take-token ratio is lower. That is, we use fewer different words. Uh, translations tend to be simpler uh, syntactically as well. Uh, why? Because translators, perhaps unconsciously, want to make things easy for their readers. Why? Because they are a reader. You know, oh, it was hard for me to read. Now I understand it. Also, I'll make it understandable for the reader down the way. Uh, and there are a list of, of these things. They tend to explic explicitate for the same reason. Explicitation just means making implicit information explicit. So it's a form of explanation, if you like. Uh, but the argument is you know, the information was really there in the text. I'm not adding anything. Uh, and uh, translators tend to explicitate, that is, to spell things out. Uh, I find those things interesting because lots of translators you speak to say, no, no, I never do that. You know, I give you exactly what's in the text. Then you get their translations and you analyze them, which is easy to do linguistically, just a basic concordancy, uh, you know, compare the two uh, as corpora, and you can show statistically that these things do happen, do happen not in every case, uh, but do happen as, as widespread tendencies uh, in many languages, in many directions, from many translators. So it's it's quite interesting. Actually, my, my own translations went into one of the original um, uh, corpora that we used for that study, and then I saw the result. One of the results was, um, in English, you can say, the woman I saw or the woman that I saw, right? So there's optional <laughs> that. And translators tend to use the optional that, and non-translators don't. And when I saw that, I thought, uh oh, I, I'm, I'm, you know. and so all my translations since then, I've taken optional that out. <laughs> so, so it's not universal anymore because <laughs> I, I looked at the study and changed the way I translate. Okay. 
there's there's one way to break the universal so so why do you think these are rising i mean you you kind of mentioned this in passing that it might be because the translator is also a reader and they're trying to um you know they just know that it might be difficult for them to understand i mean i i think it makes a ton of sense um but i think it's something that people aren't always thinking about even with you know again quote unquote literal translations if you're going to be adding in text right i mean that 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 should be a the fact that it is a very normal thing to do, right? You, that you'd be adding in words, for example, to explicate yeah. certain relationships. Or you add punctuation to, to just make it right. clearer. Well, yeah. Right. I, I think, uh, I, I mean, there are lots of proposed reasons. Nobody knows to tell you the truth. Um, my take on it is this. I, I find that translators are rather risk averse because the, to, to all, those, all those tendencies basically say translations are more boring than non-translations, which is not a good thing. But I, I think translators should take more risks. That is, I want them to use more different words. I want them to do something that attracts the reader's attention uh, more. And when I go through and, and analyze translators' choices in terms of risk management, I'm usually appalled that, that people don't take risks. The reason is this, they're not paid enough. You know, you take risks in business because there's a chance you're going to get profits down the line, right? That's why people take risks in business. You take risks when you're translating. What are you going to gain? You know, not much unless somebody's paying you, you know, a percentage of the sales, which rarely happens, unfortunately. So I think uh, the, the um, traditional subservient status of translators feeds into risk aversion, which then feeds into the tendency to use those uh, those those strategies that I mentioned. Yeah. So I I don't remember reading this in in this section, but has uh, has there been any work done on um you know differences between like if you're translating from a native language into a non-native language versus a non-native into native? Because I'm 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 just curious to see. Okay, if you um. Yeah, I mean, if you know the if you know the source text better, the start text, right? Would that make it easier or harder to translate into an, another language that you don't know as well? Um, yeah, or vice there's versa. lots of um, lots of L two translating going on. L two is just going into your second or third language. Okay, right. Uh, uh, why? Because English is so dominant that we don't have enough translators into any of these smaller languages in Europe, for example, into Chinese or Japanese. So in China, plenty of people are doing L2 translation, uh, actually going into English in, in, in their case. Okay, right. And, and in Northern Europe, they all go into English as a matter of course, because their English is so great. Yeah, there's a lot of study on that. Uh, basically, you find that the tendencies become accentuated uh, because people have, have less... Uh, have a, a narrower band of, of uh, skills, skill usage or lexi common lexical usage in a language, they will stick to what they know uh, pretty well. And this is fine in technical texts. Uh, it tends not to be so fine in creative texts or literary texts. But mm. uh, yeah, it's a lot of work done. And then a lot of work done on indirect translation, where, um, for example, to get into Catalan from Russian, we probably go from Russian to English, English to Catalan. And so the Catalan version accumulates the, the double tendencies uh, towards risk aversion. And uh, and a lot of work has been done on that as well. 
Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, and that's actually how most, um, you know, bio translations are done around the world is, is you know, if you have a, I, I worked for a, um, on a project for a, a very short time in um, Mexico to a language called Nahuatl. And basically yep. the translators were um, Spanish speakers. They were using a Spanish version and none of them knew Hebrew. So they would translate, um, you know, from Spanish, their version into Nahuatl. And then that was translated into a back translation into English. And then I read that to see if it was accurate against the Hebrew. Right. Um, And so basically what you're saying is every time this translation occurs, um, you have more and more of these, you know, universals appearing like explication and yeah, I mean, just using using less words, less variety of words. Is that is that is that what you're saying, or just that? Um, yeah, that, that, that those things that universals or tendencies tend to accumulate when you're going right. through different relays uh, of a language. Um, translations in Nahuatl eh, began back in the 16th century. Eh? The, <laughs> the classic, classic cases of uh, of them uh, inventing. Well, synchronism, you know, putting the two cultures together and, and the and the Franciscan priest struggling to keep a track of what was going on. Yes. Yes. And yeah. and a lot of, you know, loan words and and such because of the the mixing. Um yeah, and I, I and I think there are quite a, a few, you know, different um dialects, you know, in that area. Um so I'm I'm sure I was working on one that just hadn't been done yet. Um anyway, yeah, yeah, so sure. yeah. So th- I, I want to end with um, this part at the end of your book uh, where you talk about some application, which I, again, I thought was, was very interesting. Um, so I'll, I'll just read this uh, you know, pretty lengthy paragraph on, on what you say. He says, you say here then is a suggestion about how to do theory. When theorizing translation, when developing your own translation theory, first identify a problem, a situation of doubt requiring action or a question in need of an answer and make sure you can get evidence on it. Then go in search of ideas that can help you work on that problem. Search anywhere, east, west, north, south. It does not matter at all. Nationalism is a luxury we cannot afford. And then be prepared to change all prior theories when the evidence does not fit. First, I really appreciate, just from a scholarly perspective, uh, going back to the evidence, right? And and saying, okay, our theories need to be based on evidence. Um, And this is true very much so in linguistics. um, You know, and, and something that, it's easy when you are theorizing um, to kind of get caught up in your own theory, right? And forget that I'm actually trying to explain the data, right? Um, and so just going back to the data is is so, so important, um, particularly in, in linguistics, like I said. So can you give an example, though, of, of what kind of translation problem um, evidence can be garnered for in the way you describe? So I, I'm, again, I'm thinking about syntax and semantics, and I can say, okay, this word is used in this way. And I can go to text and I can see, okay, here's the distribution, right? I've, I have a very clear idea of, you know, what it, the distribution is. And if you give me more data, I can take that into account. Um, but with translation, it feels like, like, because there is, um, I mean, it's hard to say that there's a quote unquote right answer to a lot of these things, right? Um, as you point out over and over again. Um, so what what kind of problem can we solve with evidence in that way? Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. Um, important to add, the, the passage you read, I'm, I'm not a positivist. I'm not saying 
If you look at facts, truth will spring up to you and hit you in the face. That doesn't happen. That's why you begin with a problem. That's important. Then go searching for evidence that will help you solve the problem. So here's a problem. Uh, in uh, Australia, we were very bad at producing messages fast. Uh, so that happened with COVID. And then we had massive floods, and it happened again. Like we, we didn't learn. We sort of figured out we learned, get the communities to do it themselves. But then if the floods came, all these people were sitting there. They didn't know in their language that the water was coming towards them. We failed miserably. So here's my problem. How can we use machine translation for crisis uh, situations, for crisis translations into 80 or so languages? How am I going to get evidence on that? Well, if I just try machine translation, I know it makes mistakes. And, and in a crisis situation, that can be disastrous. So what I have to do is find out what kinds of uh, databases, we, because crises are predictable. <laughs> Believe it or not, we don't know when they're going to happen. But they're sort of, you know, Australia's going to be bushfire and floods and you know, pandemics occasionally. Uh, so we let's see, can we build up databases to handle the kinds of things that happen? Can we calculate how long it takes a person to correct the machine translation? And we think there's going to be very little. And then we set up experiment groups to see how people process lightly post-edited machine translation and if they can do that correctly. All right? Uh, it's quite a big project. It doesn't sound like, like there. But the important things... Evidence for me now, a lot of it has to be on the way people receive translations. Uh, how can they, if, you know, if there's an infelicity, you know, an error or not so much an error, but how do they make sense of it? And we're finding out that people are very good at making sense of text. So machine translation is an option when time is, is of the essence. And then we can't eliminate the human element because there are very high risks involved. So... Let's see, how long will it take a person to go over the text and check that it's right in that language? So that, that's a project for me for the next year. Uh, yeah, evidence-based, but not positivistic. It's not by looking at language that truth is going to hit me in the face. It's by calculating how we can actually solve these real-world problems. That's really interesting, though. So basically, the evidence that we are looking for in this respect has to be how... Um, how people are receiving the translated text. So well, if... I think it, it's been the big, big blind spot. You know, for centuries, we've talked about the production of translations. Nobody's really talked about how people read translations as a particular kind of text. Right. So there's a whole lot to be discovered there as well. Right. Yeah. And, and if you do have the interpretation of, you know, again, so in, in your example, right, you have a certain message you're trying to convey, right? And you're trying to convey it quickly, right? Um, but if you... If you convey that message and people don't get that message, right? <laughs> I mean, there there is a. I mean, in this particular case, you can say, okay, that's a bad translation, or or there's you know something about it that's not right. Um, and so in, in in that case, I mean, you know, you can say, I mean, it's at least not having the effect that you want it to have, right? Um, and in yeah. that case, it might be quote unquote wrong. Um, but I, I think that is a good way to, you know, possibly check to see, um, you know, if your translation is right or wrong. 
um, if if there is such a mismatch between the source text and the you know uh, or the start text and the the target language, right? That 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 you're it's just not getting across. The message is is not. Well, you, you've got to be trusted, you know, and sometimes that literalism can get you trusted, as you had the example of repeating the classical phrases that people expect in the Bible. Uh, but sometimes you're trusted because of your position in the community uh, or because it's from the government. For the, the Chinese people in, in Melbourne, if it's from the government, it's got to be true. Yeah? For the <laughs> Arabic speakers, if it's from the government, it's not going to be true. <laughs> Lots of these uh, these presuppositions. So I've been working on, on behavior change communication. Uh, and if you think about religious texts, hey, I think it's basically behavior change communication. You've got to consider what kinds of behaviors result from the reception of the text. Right. Yeah, that is very interesting. Um, so that's, um, I think, a good place to end. And just want to say thank you very much for um, your time, your insights, your book. Um, we can post a link to you know your book on the on the show notes. Um, just I found it very helpful and interesting to see you know what kinds of problems um, everyday translators are running into and how they're solving them. Um, and I and I think our listeners too will be very interested in you know seeing what real translators out in the world are are doing to solve these kinds of problems. So thank you again. Okay, thank you very much, Kim. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Biblical Languages Podcast, brought to you by Biblingo. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app and leave us a review. You can also follow Biblingo on social media to discuss the episode with us and other listeners. And don't forget to visit biblingo.org to start your 10-day free trial of Biblingo.